We're going to spend the rest of this summer uh, walking through some selected psalms, some various psalms, and we're going to start uh, with Psalm 3 today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 3, I'm going to read it in its entirety and then share some remarks, and then we're going to have a time of, of, of prayer uh, for some of our uh, family here. And uh, I, I really hope you're I hope you take the prayer lists that uh, Melissa sends out. I hope you uh, take prayer seriously. God does tremendous things through pray through prayer, and um, through prayer He allows us to be involved with what He's doing and get the blessing of seeing Him work uh, and, and answer our our requests and and our pleas and and just you'll see that in Psalm three that we serve a wonderful wonderful God wonderful God who who wants to to uh, be the provider and is the provider for his people. So Psalm 3, starting in, in verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory And the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. And he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Pray with me, Lord. Speak through me today and encourage us with this word. Fortify us with this word. Transform us through this word. By your grace, may I not say more than is here. But also by your grace, help me to say everything that is here. Everything that you want us to see and hear today about your glory, about your wonderfulness. To transform us. To help us understand what a wonderful Savior and God we have and serve. Thank you for putting your son on the cross to pay the penalty that the sins of the world deserve to pay, that we individually deserve to pay, and for offering up a relationship with us who are sinners, enemies of you, the one true God. Thank you for serving us when you are worthy to be served. And Lord, may we do likewise. And may we do likewise because of one reason, because it displays your character. Because it makes much of you and not of us. Help us to decrease. And may you increase through our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Anyone who is uh, living in the real world who 
doesn't have their head buried in the sand uh, understands that life rarely goes as scripted. We, we live in a world that f- few things seem to, to go as planned oftentimes. Life can be anything but what is planned, but, but what is expected. Some, sometimes those uh, disruptions in our plans come from our own sin. Sometimes those disruptions in our plans come from other people's sin. Sometimes those disruptions in our plans uh, come simply because God designed it that way. It has nothing to do with sin. It's just God in His sovereignty is choosing to get glory in that specific way. And you can go to John 9 and see that. We spoke to that quickly last week. No one sinned. God in His great sovereignty allowed that man to be born blind for that very moment that God would get great glory through His blindness. And that could be a very tough doctrine, that can be very, a, t- a very tough truth, a very tough uh, reality to allow to set into our lives that you may have what you have, you may be going through what you're going through simply because, because God wants to get the glory from it. It has nothing to do with your sin, has nothing to do with other people's sin, it has everything to do with God simply wants to get glory through your situation. But life rarely goes as planned. There are people in this room my own family, we, we live on a daily basis. Things didn't go as planned. How do we handle the things when they don't go as planned? How do we do life when life hurts? Where do we turn? Who do we run to? Where do we go when life doesn't go as planned? The, the setting of Psalm 3 uh, just to give you an idea, David's not David is king, but he's not writing this psalm from the palace. He, he hasn't drawn this nice warm bath and is just sitting there and, and, and eating a lavish meal and just thought, well, I'll just write about how good God is. I'll just write about what a refuge and a shield and a strength God is. No, David's on the run. David pins this psalm. He is the king of Israel, but things are not going well. They have been going well, but David made a decision that you all know well, you know the story. David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. He inaugurates a relationship, initiates a relationship with her, even though she's married, even though he has plenty of wives, he pursues someone that's not his. And that decision sets in motion a chain of consequences, a chain of actions that this psalm relays to us in pictures. David writes this psalm and he's dealing with the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. The consequence of adultery, the consequence of then trying to cover up that adultery by by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered, the child that Bathsheba bore from that relationship dies, The subsequent children that come from that relationship are fighting, kill each other. That's the the situation that David finds himself in here. Sin has consequences. The decisions that we make have consequences. 
consequences not only for our own lives, but worse than that, consequences for other people's lives. There, I, I, I'm not, I, I look out in this crowd and I see faces and as I'm preaching, my mind is going through. I see you're sitting in the consequences and you're living through the consequences of other people's poor, terrible, sinful decisions. And, and, I, and I pray for you. Some of you are sitting in consequences that you just have to go to God's sovereignty over. And listen to me real quickly, just to set the stage for Psalm 3 of what transpired upon David's decision to take Bathsheba when she was not his to take. David's oldest son, Amnon, ends up raping his daughter, his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar's brother, Absalom, takes revenge by killing Amnon. As a result of that, David's son, Absalom, who has committed murder, by the way, just like his father committed murder, though he may not have pulled the trigger, so to speak, his father had Uriah killed, flees. And for many years, Absalom is, 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 is in, in exile. That's the word I'm looking for, exile. I figured I'd say is while I searched for that word. Exiled. He's in exile. Later, after many years, he is allowed to return. But obviously, things with David and his son Absalom are not good. And for many years, David refuses to acknowledge, refuses to have a relationship, refuses even to see his son Absalom. As a result, resentment builds. Anger builds, frustration builds within Absalom. He begins to rally some of the the disgruntled people in David's kingdom, some of the disgruntled people under David's rule. He rallies them behind his rule. And ultimately, Absalom sets out to kill his own father. He pursues his own father, David, with the desire of killing him. David realizes this plan. He's made aware of this plan. David packs up his household. He packs up his, all of his people, his family, and they're on the run. But again, David is faced with the situation of looking at these people in the eye, knowing that ultimately they're on the run because of David's initial sin. They're on the run, not because Absalom is chasing them. They're on the run because David chose to step outside the law, the rule of God, and do things His own way, to determine what was right in His own eyes. And when you do that, there are consequences. And they're on the run. They're forced to flee. Think about how David must have felt knowing that he had brought this upon his people. He's their king. He's meant to serve them, and here they are running. Imagine looking at your people suffering, knowing it was you and your decisions that brought this upon your people, your decision to pursue self over God. Had David repented? Yes, he had. David had repented. And the reality is this, though we may repent, the consequences of our sin oftentimes still remain. repentance may remove the guilt, it may remove the the stain, it may put us right with God, and yet the consequences of our sins 
remain, and they were difficult to bear at times. And life is falling apart. For David, again, it was due to his own sin. For others here in this room, it's falling apart because of others' poor decisions, other people's sin. Had nothing to do with you. Had everything to do with someone else. For, for some of us in here, and we're going to pray for some of those, life is somewhat falling apart because of sickness and illness and disease, but that is because of sin. Not your sin, but because we live in a sinful world. We live in a sinful world. And one of the effects of that is, is sickness. And life lived in this sinful world, this world marred by sin, can be devastating. The question for us today in this psalm is this. What do you do when life falls apart? What do you do when life falls apart? How do you respond when things don't go as planned? How do you respond when you're sitting in the consequences of your sin, someone else's sin, or maybe consequences that weren't brought on by sin? How do you deal with that? Maybe your children are pursuing a lifestyle or a path that, that, that they know better that you would have nothing to do with. How do you respond? Maybe, maybe work, you're treated unfairly, you're, you're, you're fired unrightly, you're, you're, you're shunned because of your faith. How do you respond? For some of you in here, it's a spouse. How do you respond? A marriage is struggling. How do you respond? How do you respond to life's struggles? When life hurts, when your world, when it crumbles, how do you respond? And David, his response, interestingly enough, was to write a psalm. David's response was to praise God. He prayed, he praised, and he worshiped. How will you respond? And I want to take some truths from this psalm and hopefully encourage us that we will be a people who respond well when life hurts. And in doing that, we will give testimony and witness to the great God we serve. That's why we will respond well, because we have an anchor, we have a shield, we have a defender whose name is Jesus, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can face life hurts differently. And in doing so, we can let our light shine. I, I read a, a, a piece, John uh, emailed me a piece, and John, uh, John Piper wrote it. And it was entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. How will you respond? Will you use your life's hurt to give glory to God, or will you use your life hurt just to have a pity party and say, woe is me? Will you give over your sickness, your, whatever you're struggling with, to the glory of God, or will you simply use it to say, woe is me? That's the challenge before us. For David wrote a psalm. How will you respond? So let's look at Psalm 3. And, and you see there on your handout, the first thing I want us to, to see the first truth here, the reality for all of us living in a sinful world is that sometimes life falls apart. Sometimes life falls apart. I think we would all attest to that. Look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Notice right off the bat how David responds to a life that is falling apart. David begins by crying out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. He, he, he expresses himself to the Lord. He went to God first for wisdom. David went to God first. 
And, and notice, notice there in, in your Bibles, hopefully in your Bibles, the word Lord there is in all caps. Small letters, but all caps. When you see that, that is translating the word Yahweh. When you see Lord at capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, that is translating a different title for God. Here, when you see Lord in all caps, it is translating Yahweh. That's very important. The word, the, 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 title, the, the, the title of Yahweh points to the personal covenant name of God. That is the characteristic that David is crying out to here. The personal covenant name of God. Not only is God a sovereign king, but God is a very personal God. He's not aloof. He's not out there somewhere. He didn't just set the world in motion and then step back. He is integrally uh, involved in our lives. He's available. And that is, the, that is the way that God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when, when Moses said, who should I tell him that sent me? And he says, you tell him I am sent you. David knows that he serves a God that is personal. He's not a king that's separate. He's not a king that's off somewhere that can't be reached. He serves a God who is personal. The same word here, the same way that David addresses God here is the same way in the New Testament that believers address God as Abba, Father. The word could be translated in our vernacular, Daddy. For those of you who have children, I'm sure you love to be called Daddy. It's personal. It's intimate. There's a relationship there. And this is David's personal, intimate cry. David is not crying out to some unknown God. He's not just crying out to just God. If you're, I don't know who you are, but if you're out there, if, if you could help me know, he's crying out to a personal, to a known God of which he has a relationship. David knew that the Lord is intimately involved in our lives and he cries out to him. David knew that the Lord cared for us like that of a loving father. God cares for us like that of a loving father. And David cried out to that God, to his God. And think about this, the goodness of God. Even even in the consequences of David's sin, David knew the character of God and trusted in the character of God and the fact that he had a loving God and a loving father who was concerned for his welfare, even in the midst of the consequences of his sin, David knew God still cared. He knew that even in the midst of consequences, even in the midst of bad decisions, even in the midst of everything he was going through, much of which had been brought on by himself, that God still loved him. David had repented, and he knew he could go to him. And thus David cried out to the awesome God that he knew and that he served. And the point is, we must know the character of God. We need to know the character of our God well. We must know well who we are loved by and cared for so that we can cry out to Him, so that we can understand how great He is. I've, I've mentioned this verse many times here, John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That you would know. The word know there is intimate. It's a relationship. Do you know this God? How well are you acquainted 
with this God. See, it's a relationship. It's a relationship. The joy of being known by God and the joy of knowing God. It is a privilege and it's a relationship. The fact that David could cry out to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is an astounding truth. The fact that we can cry out to that same God is an astounding truth. And notice in verse 1, not only, not only did David cry out amidst his enemies, David's enemies were increasing. The situation was snowballing. Things were getting worse and worse and worse for David by the minute. Things were getting out of control quickly. The question becomes, David went to God with that. What do you do with that when things are getting out of control? When things are getting out of control. Not only were things snowballing, but, but, but David's enemies not only were attacking him, but they're attacking his relationship and trust in the character of God. Look at verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Their words were attacking the very fabric of of the relationship that David had with God. Some of you may have been there. Some of you may be there. And, and, and the enemy, the world, even your friends are questioning, does God really love you? If God loved you, certainly you wouldn't be going through what you went through. If God loved you, certainly you wouldn't be going through what you are going through. If God loved you, certainly He wouldn't have allowed that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible, even in Psalm 23, David later writes, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The reality is in that Psalm, though David walks through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? He says, I serve a God who walked through this valley before me. And I serve a God who's walking behind me. I serve a God that no matter what I go through, He's encamped all around me. See, David knew the character of God. And yet, his situation and those around him were saying, certainly God doesn't love you. Certainly there, there is no deliverance for you. You think it's possible in David's scenario they were bringing up his sin with Bathsheba? You think it's possible in David's scenario they were bringing up his sin of having Uriah killed? You think they were bringing up his sin? Some of you have been in that situation. Some of you are in that situation where, oh, you did this, and now you're suffering. Oh, you did this, and now you're suffering. And David cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. Satan, our friends, the world, they'll do this. They'll make accusations about us. They'll accuse us of things, trying to get us to doubt God's goodness trying to get us to doubt our worth, trying to get us to doubt whether God can help, to, to think that we've wandered too far away from God for Him to help. And, and the reality is this, we better be real settled in who we know God to be if we are going to face life confidently. We better be real settled in who we know God to be. We better be real sure if our, if our trust in God is going to be secure, if we're going to remain unwavering to God, we better be real sure of who He is. Listen to Charles Spurgeon made the following statement regarding uh, this psalm. He says, Doubtless David felt this infernal suggestion to be staggering to his faith. 
If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. That, that would be the worst that it could get for a believer, is to fear that God is not there. That there is no help. And hear me, that is exactly the point where Satan will attack. Your confidence in God. Your trust in the character of God. When things go bad, when life hurts, I promise you, Satan and this world will attack the very fabric of your foundation, of your relationship with God and His goodness. That is where they will go. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3. Satan has no... He, he can't doubt God's, God's sovereignty, that, that He's created all the heavens and the earth. You know where He's going to attack? He's going to attack whether He's good. Sure, God is great, but is He good? Sure, God can do it, but will He do it? And Satan and this world want us to doubt whether God is good, whether He loves us, and whether He can do anything about whatever it is we're facing, and even whether He wants to help. But how will you respond? How will you respond to that? Do you know God well enough? Are you securely? Just like Daniel saying, can you say that He's your foundation? That you will not be moved when life hurts? See, this is nothing new. Jesus Himself went through this. You, you can look at Matthew 27 and see the same accusations. They said in Matthew 27, 43, He trusts in God. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now if He delights in Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. They're saying, hey, you're so big and bad and God's your Father. Well, tell Him to get you off that cross. Tell him to take you down off that cross. The reality is the worst thing Jesus could have done at that very moment was get off that cross. Why? Because you and I would still be bound up in our sin. So Jesus stayed on that cross. And even worse, Jesus at that very moment in his, in his humanity, in his flesh, in Matthew 27, 46, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The weight of the sin of the whole world has fallen on, upon him relationship with that with his father that had been perfect he has been forsaken on our behalf that is exactly where satan is going to attack us the difference was david knew that he was being taunted because of his own sins but jesus was sinless jesus was being taunted and punished for my sins and for your sins and when we go through life guess what the world is going to taunt us the word is going to accuse, the word is going to question, and how we handle life's hurts is going to say a tremendous amount about the God we serve. It's going to say a tremendous amount to the world about the God we serve. But David had a relationship with the Lord that he knew that even in the midst of his sin, God was still good. That God was there, that he was an ever-present help in the time of trouble. The question for us becomes this, do you have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Do you know God as your Savior? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you say yes to that one, let me take it a step further. How well do you know Him? How intimate is that relationship? How, how well do you trust in Him? 
I married Karen on June 28, 2003. I trusted her, but I trust her now more than I did then, 11 years later. And I look back and I think, man, I don't even know if I trusted her compared to the way I trust her today. And it shows, I hope. Our knowledge of each other, our relationship, it's growing. We trust each other. How about you and your relationship to the Lord? Is your relationship to God growing? Is it static? How is it? Can you say that it's firm? That you'll not be moved no matter what? Why or why not? The reality is that sometimes life falls apart. We better be ready. We better have a solid relationship with the Lord. The the trials are coming. And in Matthew, he says, hey, you build your life on the sand of this world and the things of this world, world, these troubles are going to blow it over. You build your life on the rock that is Jesus, you'll be okay. Secondly, when life falls apart, trust confidently in God's character and cry out to Him through prayer. Trust God's character and cry out to that character through prayer. Look at verse 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, the glory and the lifter and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. Uh, when you're studying the Bible, always look for these, these but statements. Showing a contrast. The, the but you in verse 3 shows a shift in David's focus. He's not focused on his circumstances anymore. He's focusing on the Lord. David's eyes have shifted from his circumstances and his friends and his enemies, and his eyes have shifted to the Lord. You know, where we're focused says a whole lot about where we're going to go. It has a lot to do with our emotions, our mindset. He's gotten his eyes off himself, off himself and he's put his eyes on the Lord. He's saying, Lord, this has everything to do with glorifying you. This has nothing to do with me. I'm going to seek to glorify you and trust in you. No matter what they say, no matter what I feel, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to get my eyes off myself. That's a good word for some of us, to get our eyes off ourselves. To fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, the author and perfecter for our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And he did that for you and he did that for me. He did that to glorify the Father. Jesus himself did not put his eyes on himself. He fixed his eyes on the Father. And David, in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, he has taken his eyes off the circumstances, and he's put his eyes and his focus on the one who is sovereign over the circumstances. And look at what David knew about God. This is why he knew the character of God. He knew the God in whom he trusted. And that's what he cries out to and appeals to in his prayer. And look at what David teaches us. He says in verse 3, the Lord is a shield. He teaches us that the Lord is our shield. We, we see this description also in Genesis 15, 1, where immediately when God forms a covenant with Abram, he tells Abram that he will be his shield. You see it in Psalms 5, 18, 30, 35, 28, you know, 33, all over, the, all over the place in the Psalms, you see God pictured as our shield. You go to Ephesians 6, the shield of faith. Our faith is a shield. 
what, God is, what, what David is saying here is that God is our protector and our defender. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, God is your protector and God is your defender. He shields us from the enemy's attacks. The enemy will do nothing to us except that which God allows. And it's personal. Remember how God, David addressed God as Lord, personal, Yahweh. And he, he, says, he says, you're not, not just a shield. What does he say? You're a shield about me in my circumstance and what I'm going through right now, where I am right now, you are a shield about me. You're not, you're not, you, 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 weren't, you weren't a shield. You won't, will be a shield. You're not a shield that's somewhere out there that I've got to find. No, you're a shield about me. Right now, where I am and what I'm facing and what I'm going through, you are here and are a shield about me. It's personal. We serve a personal God. He is ever present and personal to David, and he can be that way to you. Your faith, your trust, your knowledge of the Lord, it has to be personal. It must be real. It's not what your mom and dad believed. It's not what your friends believed. It has to be personal. It has to be growing and personal. And you must know, you must be settled in the character of God when trials come. When trials come, that is not the time to start trying to figure out the character of God. It's before the trials come. And we must be settled that that God has said, look, if you're in Jesus Christ, I'm for you, not against you. If you've applied the blood of Jesus Christ to the sin of your life and had it erased, I am for you forever. Eternal life. Never perish. He's for no matter what. He says in John 16, hey, you're going to face many trials in this world, but guess what? I've overcome the world. I'm a shield. I'm your defender. I'm your protector. Secondly, he says, the Lord is your glory. He says, my glory. The Lord is our glory. And this is a tremendous thought. David is the king of Israel, and yet his glory is not found in his position. It's not found in his accomplishments. It's not found in his status. It's not found in his ease of life. It's not found in any of those things. David's glory is found in his relationship to the Lord. It's not in earthly treasures. It's it's in the Lord. And David teaches us here in a truth that we must realize is that our identification with the Lord is our glory. It's our glory. To be able to be called a child of God, to be known by God, to be loved by God, that is our glory. It was not attached. Notice, his glory wasn't attached to being delivered. His glory was attached to a relationship. And it's the same for us. Whether the Lord restored David to his palace, whether the the Lord uh, eliminated Absalom in this threat, he said, I'm not attaching the glory anything to that. I'm attaching the glory to the Lord because of who he is, and that does not change. The word there, my glory, is a term that, that... that points to the comparative unimportance of earthly esteem. He's saying earthly esteem is, is unimportant. My glory is in you. And, and in, in this week, I, I shared with you in, in student, at the student camp, one night the speaker taught out of Daniel 3, and he was challenging us to be bold. 
And, and, and he, he taught, that's a very uh, familiar passage with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and Nebuchadnezzar has built a, a huge gold statue of himself. And, and whenever the, the sounds were made, you were to worship him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. And, and, and I thought about that as, as I was preparing uh, uh, this yesterday. And, and life is falling apart. These three guys had a trust in God. And in Daniel 3, let me read it for you instead of turning there. It, Daniel uh, 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. They've been told, hey, bow down to this, bow down to this gold statue or be thrown into the fiery furnace. There's your options. This is how they respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. O Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this is the verse. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Hey, we trust that our God will deliver us from this. But guess what? Even if you throw us into this fiery furnace, it does not in any way, shape, or form, and we die here, it in no way, shape, or form destroys our faith in the God in whom we serve. Our faith is in the person. It's not in the benefits. Our faith is in a person. The challenge for us is, do you have an even if faith? Or do you have an as long as faith? As long as God does this, I'll trust you. Over here, there's a, hey, but even if you do not do this, God, I will still trust you. There's a vast difference. You can go all the way to the book of Job in Job 1.8. The whole book of Job is an answer to the question of why do you worship God? Satan accused Job, really accused God of buying Job's affection and worship. And in Job 1.8, he says, Did Job worship you for nothing? Look at how good you've been to him. Look at how greatly you've blessed him. The scary thought, the scary thing for me as a husband, the scary thing to me as a father of two children that I love, is that same accusation, we have no reason to believe that that same accusation is not being made about all of us even today. That Satan could be accusing God of buying our affection. Why do I love God? Is it because He gave me a great wife? Is it because He gave me a great church to pastor? Is it because He gave me two healthy kids? Great family? Or do I worship God because He's God? And whether all that stuff is here or whether all that stuff is taken away, will I still Worship God. That's the question Daniel, David is saying here. That's the question that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to answer. That's the question we're going to have to answer. When life falls apart, you find out real quick why you worship God. Do you worship Him for His benefits or do you worship Him for His person? Do you worship Him because He's redeemed you? That He set you free from, the, from sin and from death? And these three boys, they were, these were boys. 
They trusted God no matter what. Good circumstances, bad circumstances. If they suffered for God, okay. If they were redeemed, okay. If they were promoted, okay. We're still trusting in God. They knew that God alone was their glory no matter what this life had to offer. And my problem and your problem is this. I tend to get glory in a lot of things that aren't worthy of getting glory from. I tend to find my, sus- my, my meaning and my uh, uh, just uh, feelings and all this other stuff in the blessings instead of simply allowing that to be rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. They knew that God was their own glory. And your question and my question is this. Is your faith an only if faith? Or is your faith an even if faith? I will trust and follow you and worship you only if. Or I will serve and worship and follow you even if. And for David, it was an even if. And I pray that we would say the same thing. That we would glorify God no matter what. Thirdly, he says, the Lord is the lifter of our head. The the word to lift up there in the Hebrew was an expression of restoring somebody who is cast down to his dignity. It's a restoration. It's a word of restoration. Joseph told the the cupbearer in Genesis 40, 13, he says, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. The word there is the restorer. He's literally saying, my glory and the one who restores me. By way of application, he's saying, God, I trust that you're the restorer of the joy that I had prior to this circumstance. Later on, David says, restore, Lord, in, in Psalm 51.10, Lord, create in me a clean heart and, and restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's a restoration. James 4.6, he humbles the proud. He gives grace to the, to the humble. And David is saying, you, Lord, lift my head. The thought that I am loved and I am cherished and I am valued by you, Lord, that's what lifts my head every morning. And so I ask you, what lifts your head? Is it the removal of circumstances? Or the removal of the trial? Or does God lift your head even in the midst of trial? You as a Christian, can you walk with your head up high even in the midst of terrible circumstances? Or, and, and I don't say that lightly because, again, I, I'm looking out here and, and I'm scared to even make those statements because of what some people are walking through. But the Lord is the lifter of our head. We can confidently face trials because the Lord is the lifter of our head. And no matter what, He's good. Not only that, he says, the Lord is attentive to our prayers. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. The the word crying there, it's an uh, an, habitual act. It's not a one time, I let God know what was going on, and then I went about my life. It is an habitual act. Spurgeon said this, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Draw near with confidence to the throne that we would find mercy and find grace to help 
in our time of need. God's holy mountain here refers to Mount Zion. It's where the Ark of the Covenant remained. The Levites were, were carrying the Ark to join David in his escape, and David sent them back. You see that in 2 Samuel. He says, Return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then He will bring me back again and show me both it and its habitation. But if He should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let Him do to me as seems good to Him. David was okay with whatever God chose to do. He was okay. And, and that's David's heart. David's heart was humbled before God. He was not haughty before God. He was humbled before God. David's heart was submissive to God. It was submissive. If the Lord restored David, David would worship God. If the Lord didn't restore David, David would worship God. Because of his character. Because of what he knew God to be. When life was falling apart, David laid hold to God in prayer. And look at the results. Verse 5. I laid down and slept. I woke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. When you cry out to the Lord in prayer, you will experience peace. When you cry out to the Lord in prayer, you will experience peace. Psalm 3 really is a, is a practical playing out of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. that says, Do not be anxious for anything, but with prayer and supplication make your requests be known to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Psalm 3 is a, is a, is a physical application of that. David cried out to God in prayer, and notice what he did next. He went to sleep. He went to sleep. He went to bed. He put it in God's hands. He did everything that he knew to do faithfully. He trusted God with it. And he went to sleep. Not in the palace. Not on a mattress. Not with the fans blowing. Not in air conditioner. Not in good circumstances. In a cave on the run. He went to sleep. And he slept through the night. When we've done everything we know to do, we simply have to trust the sovereignty of God. We simply have to trust. It reminds me on Peter in Acts 12, the night before his execution, Peter's sound asleep in the prison. Holy Spirit literally had to wake him up. He's asleep. I'm telling you, if I'm being ex ex executed the next day, sleep's probably not what I'm doing that night. But he had a peace about it. He had a peace. And the truth for us is this. When the Lord is your shield and the one who sustains you, the one who lifts your head, the odds or the numbers against you do not matter. They don't matter. As someone once said, one plus God is a majority. Paul said in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on to say, like we are like sheep led to the slaughter. And he says, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Even if our enemies kill us, we conquer. Even if those who are acting unrighteously toward us seem to win, when we stay faithful to the Lord, 
we conquer. We conquer. Lastly, when we cry out in prayer because we are trusting God completely for deliverance. We cry out in prayer because we are trusting completely for the deliverance from God. David says that in verses 7 and 8. Rise, O Lord, and save me, O God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You've shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to you, Lord, belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. In a make-believe world, David could have quit after verse 6. But if you're like me, anxiety and worry and all these things have a way of finding their way back into your life. You cast them out on the Lord and you reel them back in. You cast them out on the Lord and then you take them back. You cast them out then you take them back. And David is saying, you continue to save me, Lord. Continue to save me. Moment by moment, we must trust God as our everything. Moment by moment. You may have good days, you may have bad days. It's a moment by moment walk. It's an interesting turn of events here real quickly. A play on words. David, in verse 1, David says that many are rising up against me. That is the same word that David uses here to ask the Lord to rise up and save him against his people. He's saying, hey, to the degree that they're rising up against me, Lord, you rise up against them. In verse 2, his enemies are saying, your God won't deliver you. That's the same verb that David uses here to say, God, save me, deliver me. The same way that our enemies are approaching me, David says, God, that's exactly where I need you to meet my need. He's saying, crush their teeth, take the sting out of their bite. Interesting, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us in defeating death. It says, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. God has defeated our greatest enemies being death through the blood of His Son, through putting His Son on the cross. And when we cast ourselves on God alone for deliverance, He gets the praise and He answers our prayers. And what David is teaching us is that we trust in God alone. And I say this very carefully, and you know my heart. We don't trust in medicine, ultimately. We are not trusting in odds. We're not trusting in predictions. We're not trusting in circumstances. We trust in God. Our deliverer is God. It's not treatments and ability, ingenuity, none of these. Do we use them? We absolutely use them. We absolutely use them. Ultimately, what I'm saying is who we trust in is God. He may use those medicines. He may use those treatments. He may use all that stuff. He may simply do something in your life that confounds the doctors. Ultimately, who we're trusting in is God. Ultimately, who we are praising is God. We're not praising a pill. We are praising a God, the God, Jesus Christ. If the treatment works, praise to God. If it doesn't work, praise to God. Either way, the promise is we who are believers have been delivered. And David's closes with your blessing be upon your people. The beauty here is that David is not just praying selfishly. David's prayer has a kingdom focus to it. He's praying beyond simply himself. 
In Matthew 6.10, the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, as it is in heaven. David is saying the same thing. His world is falling apart, and you don't find David praying selfishly. He's praying in light of God's kingdom purposes. He's saying, Lord, don't waste this experience. Lord, don't waste this disease. Lord, don't waste me walking this road that I would have never wanted to be on, never dreamt I would be on. Lord, by your grace, do not waste it. The question becomes this, are your prayers kingdom-minded or are they self-minded? And in conclusion, I challenge us, don't waste your experience. Don't waste your situation. Allow the Lord to redeem it. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, Paul says this while he's sitting in prison. He says, that I may know God and the power of His resurrection, but also the fellowship of His sufferings. There is an intimacy, and I don't, I, again, there is an intimacy with God that is born only in trial. There's a fraternity, there's a, there's a fellowship that is born. Those of you who have gone through cancer already and by the grace of God defeated it, there's a, a, a feeling toward others who have cancer that I will never know having not been through cancer. Marital struggles, all these things. There's an intimacy I pray that God would be your deliverer. I pray that God would be the one that lifts your head. I pray that God would be the one that you turn to. Not circumstances, but God. And the question becomes this. Is intimacy with Christ, is a deeper walk with Christ, if that is what God is accomplishing, is that enough for you? Is that enough? Is that okay? If that's what God redeems your circumstance with, are you okay with that? Is intimacy with Christ worth that? And I pray that we would know our God as defender and protector and the lifter of our head. David turned his trial into a song. And I I pray that we could do the same.